Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio. And today we're going to be talking about people who found a more comprehensive understanding of reality and moved from atheism to Christianity. Today we're going to be looking at a number of conversion stories from people who were atheist and raised atheist who, because of intellectual and non-emotional reasons, or at least not entirely emotional reasons, became Christians, and some from very prestigious universities. And on top of that, we're also going to take a look at a discussion between N.T. Wright and Tom Holland, who is an agnostic um, writer and historian, as they discuss some things related to the New Testament and the nature of the Messiah and Paul, the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Why? Because what we're really going to be talking about overwhelmingly is how Christianity is a more comprehensive worldview that makes the best sense of the nature of reality and much better sense than any worldview that includes atheism or a sense of naturalism. One of my favorite films is the film uh, The Truman Show. I don't know if you've ever seen The Truman Show, but here's a man who lives basically in a television studio that is as big as um, a few neighborhoods, at least. Uh, this, there's a dome and the sky is there and there's a sun and a moon that come up and there, he's got a wife, but the wife is an actress. And in fact, everyone that he encounters is either an actor, an actress, or some kind of a stunt person. But Truman is the only person who's not in on the joke. In fact, the world watches him every night because it's a television program and it's one of the most popular shows in the world, in the movie, in the world of the movie. And so he has this microcosm of his world, and he has his view of that world. He has his own world view. And for the most part, this has been fine during his life. We find out as the movie unfolds that there were certain things that were a bit awkward throughout his life growing up, but uh, the, the, the uh, hoax was pulled off pretty successfully. Uh, until, in adulthood, Truman begins to notice some things that just don't seem to fit in his world with this worldview that he has. Uh, he, on one occasion, a spotlight falls from the sky and crashes right in front of him because, after all, this is a movie set, but he knows that, or the, the, the world knows that, and we know that, but Truman doesn't know that. And so he jumps back, and he has to make sense of this. What's going on? How is this the case? Where did this come from? What is it? What's going on? You know, And then on another occasion, he hears, when he turns on the radio, rather than a radio station, he hears people tracking his movements, as someone would have to do if they're filming this as a television show. And he knows they're talking about him, and it's, it, it doesn't make any sense. Am I being followed? What's going on? And then on one occasion, he looks at what should be an elevator shaft when the doors open, and it's in there, people in there changing costumes and things like that. And so after a while, he begins to realize something else is going on. And he allows himself to entertain the possibility that there is something larger than this reality that he is used to. That there is something that transcends this microcosm, this world that he has grown up in. That perhaps just not far away, just beyond the surface, there is a whole world out there that is much bigger and more real because people are not... Uh, actors and actresses and all these kinds of things. And so it's a fascinating show. And if he could just get past this small ocean to the far shore, he would find that there is no shore, but there is a staircase with a doorway. And if he could walk through the door, he would find himself in another world. I love that. And I love it partly because it so perfectly mirrors what I think is going on here. Naturalism is much like the microcosm world that Truman lives in. 
naturalism makes sense of things that are right in front of us. In a sense, it makes sense because what's real is what we can see and touch and we have evidence of, just like Truman had evidence that I've got a wife, I've got friends, I've, I can drive down the street. Of course, this isn't, re this isn't fake. It's all real. Uh, it makes sense of all those things. But if naturalism is all you have, then you come to find out that certain things just don't make sense. They're not explainable on naturalism like the spotlight falling from the sky, and in reality, like consciousness, or the facts surrounding the beginning of the universe, or the resurrection of Jesus, or design, or morality, or value, or any other of a number of things. And so um, what we have to do is say, we could take a position of, I don't know what best explains these, like Dillahunty does. I don't know what it is. I don't know that we need an explanation. Or we can understand that it's not just that naturalism hasn't yet provided an explanation, but for some of these things, it doesn't seem that an explanation is possible on naturalism. And so because of that, what we have to do is we have to realize that beyond this sea of naturalism, there is a doorway that goes to another world. And if you would accept that, if you would accept this greater, higher reality that lays atop this one, then everything makes sense. And for Truman, it made sense because this spotlight falling from the sky. Well, yeah, because now I know this is a movie studio or a television studio. Uh, the people tracking my position, the people in the elevator, it all makes sense now that I know the greater reality. But it never made sense in the microcosm world. And in the same way, if you put theism, and I would say Christian theism, as I'll argue, on top of this world of physical things, of space, time, and matter, you would see that everything fits a lot more nicely. And what we're going to see here today is several examples of people who had that very experience, who were raised naturalists, raised atheists. One of them raised somewhat dogmatically atheists. And yet, when they laid Christianity on top of it, it all made much more sense. So that's what we're going to take a look at today. And we're going to begin not with a video. I couldn't find a video of this person, but you'll see on the screen here, this is a person whose name is Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. And she has an article here, How Oxford and Peter Singer Drove Me from Atheism to Jesus. Now, I'm going to make comments as we go, and we are going to look at video later. And this is going to be, I think, a great episode. I'm really excited about this. So we're going to read her article. But before we do, let me just point out that this is what Christians would have suspected. According to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, <clears throat> talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By the way, firstborn, um, and, and this has been borne out clearly in the scholarship. This is not really something to get hung up on. Firstborn can mean just preeminent. That's why we talk about the preeminence um, of Jesus. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In other words, when you hear Christians say things like, Jesus, it's all about Jesus, they're not just trying to be cliche, they're not just giving you a bumper sticker theology, that is what scripture teaches in the New Testament. What's the predictive power? We should find then, if that's true, if he is, if all things were created by him and for him, and he sustains all things, then if we plug in a Christian worldview, it should be the case. The prediction is things should sink into place rather nicely. That's what we're going to see. And again, we'll begin here with Sarah Irving Stonebreaker and her testimony 
of what happened to her. Now listen to her background. I grew up in Australia in a loving secular home and arrived at Sydney University as a critic of religion. I didn't need faith to ground my identity or my values. I knew from the age of eight that I wanted to study history at Cambridge and become a historian. My identity lay in academic achievement and my secular humanism was based on self-evident truths. As an undergrad, I won the University Medal and a Commonwealth Scholarship to undertake my PhD in history at King's College, Cambridge. King's is known for its secular ideology, and my perception of Christianity fitted well with the views of my fellow students. Christians were anti-intellectual and self-righteous. One of the things that you're going to see as we move forward is with each one of these individuals raised atheist, you're going to find that they had a wrong understanding of Christianity and what Christianity was. And I realize that for some of you out there, you're going to say, well, yeah, but I was raised in it. I know what it is. They weren't raised in it. I was raised in it. I know what it is. Unfortunately, what I have to say here, and this is not in any way to cheapen what you experienced, I want to point out that what we're raised in is specific to some, some this is a tautology, but specific to how we were raised. You were raised with a particular brand of Christianity. That doesn't mean that what you were raised with clearly reflects biblical Christianity. It's just the brand of Christianity that you were raised with. If it reflects largely in terms of core doctrines, biblical Christianity, that doesn't mean that everything you were taught was necessarily correct and or everything that I was taught was necessarily correct. And so we wrestle with these things, but we'll come back to that in a moment. After Cambridge, I was elected to a junior research fellowship at Oxford. There I attended, are you getting the impression that this is a thoroughgoing intellectual girl? There I attended three guest lectures by world-class philosopher and atheist public intellectual Peter Singer. You might be familiar with Peter Singer, and if you're not, you would have been if you were interested in worldview issues about 10 years ago because he was much more of an obvious presence. Singer recognized that philosophy faces a vexing problem in relation to the issue of human worth. Now understand, Singer recognized this. She's not making this up or putting this on his lips. He understood and recognized this. The natural world yields no egalitarian picture of human capacities. What about the child whose disabilities or illness compromises her ability to reason? Yet without reference to some set of capacities as the basis of human worth, the intrinsic value of human beings becomes an ungrounded assertion, a premise which needs to be agreed upon before any conversation can take place. What she is beginning to realize is that if naturalism is true, if all you have is um, atheism, there is no God, uh, then what, you, what, what you're left with is humans are not equal. Because what's the stand? You just have to agree that we're going to say they're equal and then have a conversation from there. But there isn't anything that makes them equal. There isn't some intrinsic worth that makes them all the same worth. And I know this isn't popular to hear. And I know that for you atheist listeners in my audience, you don't view people that way. I realize you view them as being equal in worth. And I want to recommend that that is partly because you were raised in a very Western, Christianized society. And even if you weren't, you have taken on Christianized principles as going to be borne out throughout this. And surely when we get to the Tom Holland and N.T. Wright discussion, this is just the history of the world. There is nothing intrinsic to people that makes them worth something or worth equal in value for sure. If there is no God, because if a person doesn't have the, as she's saying, if they, if they have disabilities, physical disabilities, and they can't work, uh, then they're less useful to human. They can't contribute to humanity like we want them to. Or if they have less 
um, cognitive capacities, if they are mentally disabled or something, then they would be less valuable and worth less to the society. I'm sorry, this is just the way it is if there is no God. Yeah, but I don't feel that way, and I understand that you don't feel that way. But I'm saying, at base, this is what's on offer. There is no ultimate sense of value or equality. So, um, she says, I remember leaving Singer's lecture with a strange intellectual vertigo. I was committed to believing that universal human value was more than just well-meaning, a well-meaning conceit of liberalism. But I knew from my own research in, into the history of European empires and their encounters with indigenous cultures that society societies have always had different conceptions of human worth. In other words, if you ground this in popular opinion within your people group, it's still subjective in a manner, matter of opinion from people group to people group. This is why the asinine suggestion of cultural relativism doesn't work, because it would mean that you have to say that certain cultures who um, abuse women, for example, or, uh, or have certain other unpopular views that you would have to say are wrong, or cannibalism, or whatever else, uh, you would have to say it's right for them, though it's not right for us, which is absurd, frankly. Um, and so she says, um, the premise of human equality is not a self-evident truth. It is profoundly historically contingent. I began to realize that the implications of my atheism were incompatible with almost every value I held dear for the reasons that we've been discussing. One afternoon, I noticed that my usual desk in the college library was in the front of the theology section. This is so great. With an awkward but humble reluctance, I opened a book of sermons by philosopher and theologian Paul Tillich. As I read, I was struck at how intellectually compelling, complex, and profound the gospel was. I was attracted, but I wasn't convinced. Listen to me. I realized that... Now, now here's the thing. She began to read these intellectual powerhouses explaining the gospel as it truly is given to us from the gospel writers and Paul and the other New Testament writers. What I want you to see here is she did not go to YouTube internet sources only, YouTube atheism or something. Now there are some very intellectually potent voices among YouTube atheists. And there are some potent voices among YouTube Christians on the internet. And I realize that what I'm saying is a bit uh, self-condemning because I am a YouTube Christian giving you information on YouTube. But you cannot just get all your information from YouTube. And you can't read one book occasionally and say, well, I'm well-rounded. Because the fact is, what you're largely going to get from YouTube atheists, for example, is, well, you know, this is just, you know, these people are just first century goat herders and things like that. I'm sorry, this highly intellectual woman is telling you the absolute truth. The gospel is, what did she say? She said that it is intellectually compelling, complex, and profound. And she's absolutely right. Whatever else you want to say, the story of Jesus and what the New Testament church shared about this story was genius if it was an innovation. But it was not an innovation. And we're going to talk about that later on in the show. But, um, but, but, but she didn't get stuff from YouTube atheism or YouTube Christians, largely, it sounds like. She got it from rigorous sources. We're going to hear more about that in just a moment. A few months later, near the end of my time at Oxford, I was invited to a dinner for the, Inter uh, the International Society for the Study of Science and Religion. I sat next to Professor Andrew Briggs, a professor of nanomaterials who happened to be a Christian. During dinner, Briggs asked me whether I believed in God. I fumbled. Perhaps I was an agnostic. Now, by the way, some of the academics in this video 
are going to use the term agnostic, where I think some on the internet would prefer the term atheist for what they are, or atheist agnostic, because what they're saying is they lacked a belief in God. They were unconvinced of uh, theism. So she said, I was an agnostic. He responded, do you really want to sit on the fence forever? That question made me realize that if issues about human value and ethics uh, mattered to me, the response that perhaps there was a God or perhaps there wasn't was unsatisfactory. In the summer of 2008, I began a new job as assistant professor at Florida State University where I continued my research examining the relationship between the history of science, Christianity, and political thought. With the freedom of being an outsider to American culture, I was able to see an active Christianity in people who lived their lives guided by the gospel, feeding the homeless every week, running community centers, and housing and advocating for migration farm, uh, migrant farm laborers. On Sunday, shortly before my 28th birthday, I walked into a church for the first time as someone earnestly seeking God. Before long, I found myself overwhelmed. At last, I was fully known and seen, and I realized unconditionally loved. Perhaps I had a sense of relief from no longer running from God. A friend gave me C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity, and one night, after a couple of moments, uh, months of attending church, I knelt in my closet in my apartment and asked Jesus to save me and to become the Lord of my life. What had happened to her? I submit to you that she recognized about human value and equality, specifically with her. She recognized that the naturalism, the microcosm of the Truman Show, seemed to make sense to this point in her life. She could see things. She could touch things. Of course, seeing things were, you know, as they were given to us by our senses. This empiricism of, of sorts worked with the world around her that she could perceive and measure. But the moment that she backed off and realized, wait a minute, a spotlight has fallen from the sky and landed in front of me, and that doesn't work, and her spotlight was the value and equality of humans that she recognized. And you might say, well, that's an emotional thing. It is emotionally powerful, but it comes from a deeply intellectual question of what, what is this? What is the nature of humanity? Are we equal? Do we have values? If so, in what is it grounded? Is it subjective or objective? From whence does it come? These are all very intellectual questions, though prompted by an innate and intrinsic awareness that that seems morally wrong, right? And so she saw that if I would, for a moment, consider what these theologians, these not YouTube personalities, but what these highly intellectual individuals are giving me in these books that happen to be in front of me at the theology section, and I were to try that on, it, it lays on top, this higher realm outside of the Truman Show lays on top of my experience and makes better sense of what's going on in a comprehensive way. My naturalism seemed a bit, um, a bit, what? Shallow, honestly. It didn't give me a comprehensive, I don't mean that offensively, but strictly speaking, shallow. It didn't seem as grown up. It didn't seem to make sense comprehensively of the world that we observe. I think this is powerful. And in fact, she kept going with the scholarly sources. From there, I started a rigorous diet of theology, reading the Bible and exploring theologians such as Reinhold Niebuhr, Paul Ramsey, and F.D. Maurice. Christianity, it turned out, looked nothing like the caricature I once held. Now notice, again, I said we were going to come back to this. There is a caricature of Christianity. We saw it with Rhett and Link. We, we've seen it with others. This idea that Christianity has to be a certain way. It's this wooden set of doctrinal positions, often that I was raised with, often in a very fundamentalists, and I don't mean that in an insulting way to Christians who identify as fundamentalists, but when in these conversations, what we mean by fundamentalist is 
it's this way. This is the only ex, we got a secondary doctrine here, uh, like your understanding of end time stuff, uh, or your understanding of the sign gifts, or your understanding of certain aspects related to creation. And if it's not this wooden understanding that I have, well, then it all goes out the window. And we, or we have this understanding of how Christians are because we have known they have a reputation for being hypocrites, when in reality, everyone's kind of a hypocrite. And the Christian message is we're all sinners, and we recognize that we are going to make mistakes. We tend to be hypocrites. By the way, if you go to a local big box store, anywhere where there's a full-blown McDonald's, just a stone's throw from diet pills, there's bound to be some hypocrites there too. But we have this picture of what Christianity is, what it teaches, and what the people are like. And we realize it doesn't have to be that way. And then it falls away. But she's going for the scholarly sources. And she's listening to what they have to say. I found the story of Jacob wrestling with God, especially compelling. God wants anything but the unthinking faith I had once assumed characterized Christianity. And that's what we hear with YouTube atheism all the time. And if you're my friends who are YouTube atheists out there and this doesn't apply to you, then please don't take offense at this. But I have to speak boldly about the situations where it does occur, where it's just, oh, you're believing in Santa Claus. I'm putting my fingers in my ear. I'm denying the evidence. That is simply not a grown-up understanding of Christianity. And if you want to sit at the, at, at, at the grown-ups table and to have a meaningful conversation about this, we have to recognize that we serve a God who is happy for us to wrestle with Him. The Jacob whose name became Israel from whence the nation came was wrestling in this sense. David wrestled with concepts, and you can see it in his Psalms. God is fine with you having questions and doubts and bringing those to Him. He is happy with that. That is part of what it means in any relationship. In any relationship, there are those struggles. And the relationship with God is a relationship. Uh, to struggle through doubt and faith, sorrow and hope. Moreover, God wants broken people, not self-righteous ones. And salvation is not about us earning our way to some place in the clouds through good works. On the contrary, there is nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. As a historian, this made profound sense to me. What is she saying? If I, if I said the Truman Show is not all there is, then the higher reality laying on top of it, if I entertained that possibility, it just made more sense. I was too aware of the cycles of poverty, violence, and injustice in human history to think that some utopian design of our own, scientific or otherwise, might save us. Christianity was also, to my surprise, radical. Okay, well, we'll stop there, but you can read it. We almost read the whole article, but, but check out this story by Sarah Irving Stonebreaker from 2017, May of 2017. Powerful, intellectual, raised in a loving but secular home who came to faith because of intellectual inquiry into the evidence and found that she had encountered a Truman Show and that there's just more to it, and a robust, comprehensive, grown-up understanding of the world around us fits better than that and gives you a better sense of the world. All right, uh, here we're going to go to Alistair McGrath, and I really want you to stay with me because we're coming to something before this is done that I think is just powerful. All right, here's what Alistair McGrath has to say. Yes, yes. I grew up in Northern Ireland back in the 1960s. And I've lost my accent, but, you know, it was a very, very rough time. There was real religious tension between Protestant and Catholic. And also I was studying natural sciences at school. I wanted to go on and study science at university. 
And I came to the conclusion, look, science says there's no God. End of discussion. And look at all this religious violence. No religion, no religious violence. It's easy. You go work it out. And so I was an atheist when I was a younger man. In fact, I'll go further than that and say I was actually really quite an aggressive atheist, someone who thought that religion was for losers. In fact, I sometimes get a bit nostalgic when I read Richard Dawkins because I think, you know, I used to be like that. So it's really quite sweet in a way. But then everything changed. And what happened was I went up to Oxford University to study science in detail. And I was forced to rethink everything. I began to realize that, you know, the case for atheism wasn't as good as I'd thought. And also Christianity, A, wasn't what I thought it was. And B, it turned out to be rather more exciting and interesting than I'd thought. And so to cut a very long story short, in my first term at university, I said, this is for me. I want to be a Christian. I think it was an intellectual conversion. It was my mind suddenly saying, this is right. And as I've grown older, I've discovered there's a lot more to Christianity than simply being right. But actually, that was what captivated me in those days. And, you know, it still captivates me today. All right. So what I want you to see here is Alistair McGrath telling his story. He was an outspoken atheist. In fact, he says that the, the stuff that Richard Dawkins puts out, I mean, it's kind of sweet. He says, <laughs> I, I'm sure he doesn't mean any condescension in that, right? Because it's not like Michael Roos, atheist philosopher, said that Dawkins made me, Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, made me ashamed to be an atheist. Uh, but... Um, Alistair McGrath says it was an intellectual conversion. The other stuff came later, but it was an intellectual conversion. He also notes that what he thought Christianity was was a bit mistaken. It's much bigger than that. It's much better. And at some point in this interview, you can go check it out. It's linked in the description. Alistair McGrath says uh, that it was like just beyond this, if I could just get just beyond this barrier, there was this whole beautiful world that opened up before me. And that is, of course, to get beyond the walls of the Truman Show, right? If you could just get beyond that sea, there is a door there that if you open that door, you can step out into a bigger and more beautiful world and more wondrous and whimsical and makes better sense of the world than what you had before. Or you can stay in the Truman Show and the things that happen occasionally that don't make sense, you can just live with that uh, tension there. But there is no tension if you have the comprehensive view that I think Christianity offers. All right, now I want you to see something else here. Um, here is another individual raised atheist, and I want you to listen to how atheist she was raised. And then we're going to get on to Tom Holland and N.T. Wright, but I want you to listen to this. My name is Jennifer Fulweiler. I was a lifelong atheist, and I'm now a Christian. I write a blog called Conversion Diary, it's a chronicle of the ups and downs of what it's like to have faith after an entire life of being an atheist. I never believed in God, not even as a child. When my dad would come read books to me at night, I believe I was in fourth or fifth grade, and our nightly reading was Carl Sagan's Cosmos. <laughs> so I was very much raised on a diet of science and reason and evidence-based rational thought. You believe what you can prove. I believe that I have hands because I can see them. I believe in a black hole, even though I've never seen one, but you know, science can tell us about the way matter moves around it that we can observe. And so this very rational worldview always made sense to me on a fundamental level. Okay, I want you to notice she says, in fourth or fifth grade, her dad would read her Sagan at night, Carl Sagan, atheist material here at night. 
Um, she was raised to believe that science and reason was the property of atheism. By the way, uh, I sound a bit bold today. I don't mean that, but I, I don't mean to come across too harsh. I love all of you all. And if the things I'm saying aren't true of you, then if, like I always say, if the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. But I want you to notice here that this is something that is so common that, that this idea that, um, Science and reason belong somehow to atheism, which is so backwards. And by the way, before we go on with her, I want to say one of the things that I love about people investigating the scholarly sources and reading good books, actual books on this and wrestling with it is there has, and this could upset some, this could even upset some Christians out there. Um, and I, 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 don't, I hope that's not the case. That's not my intent. And I, certainly, I don't want to upset the atheist either. Um, but I want you to hear me when I say the, one of the great things about the internet is we have access to information almost everywhere and almost always. One of the things that has happened though, in the dialogues between Christians and atheists is where these sorts of conversations used to happen in a much more formal way. That is to say, if you go back even 10 years, um, what you would get when you had a Christian and atheist in dialogue is you would see it because it was on stage somewhere. I personally enjoy live on stage moderated debates uh, for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is because what you typically have, if an event like that has been organized, is you have someone who has been somewhat vetted as a someone who's a professional who has devoted their lives to this study or to theology or philosophy or history or science or something. You have that on both sides, the Christian and the skeptic. And they stand there and they debate and it is... For one thing, it's not a bunch of mocking for the most part, um, Hitchens perhaps being an exception. It was a civil discussion. There was a mutual respect. And frankly, a lot of atheists will admit the Christian, if not always, mostly came out on top. Sorry, I know you, some of you are not going to agree with that. Go check out those debates for yourself. But what has happened now on the Internet is YouTube atheism. And again, this is not true of certain channels, but... A, a, a lot of it is mockery laced with some arguments, some arguments that are somewhat paper mache knockoffs of bigger, more robust atheist arguments, which means that even the Christians that you atheists might want to hear the best arguments, they're not getting the best arguments often from those purveyors. And guess what? The same thing goes the other way. Because with online debates between any old Christian who wants to debate and any old atheist who wants to debate, what we often get is not the best representation from either side. And I'm afraid that sometimes in terms of persuasion, the Christians lose more than they used to in the days when we uh, took this, I think, seriously enough that we really made sure we knew our stuff, both sides, the atheist and the Christian, before we went in there. And so now the impression is given that, well, it's who even knows. And because mockery is so persuasive, on the internet, these sites that, are, that, that, that nestle these arguments that aren't even the best atheist arguments in a, um, in a salad of mockery, and this is definitely true in the comments sections, it's just very persuasive. But if you would go to the, but if, if you go back 10 years and then forever before that in the history of Christian dialogue with skeptics, you would see, I think, a much higher level of discussion than often happens. 
again, I'm speaking in generalities. This is not every atheist YouTube channel and not every Christian YouTube channel that I'm describing. But um, it's one of the reasons why I'm here is I want us to, I want to speak to the YouTube crowd. Now, this is not condescending. I'm not speaking down to you. I'm speaking to myself. Everything I say to you that sounds a bit preachy, I could say it to myself in a mirror. But we need to read the books. We need to read the scholars. We need to read the journal articles. We need to make sure we get the best stuff because that's where this thing gets a bit more, I think, clear. And we can see, I think, there that the comprehensive worldview of Christianity makes better sense of all these things. Now, what what really set her off on this discussion, this investigation, this woman who was raised on Carl Sagan? Before I got to the point that I could really start researching faith with an open mind, something had to happen. And for me, that occurred after my first child was born. I looked down and thought, what is this baby? And I thought, well, from a pure atheist materialist perspective, he is a collection of randomly evolved chemical reactions. And I realized if that's true, that all the love that I feel for him, that it's all nothing more than chemical reactions in our brains. And I looked down at him and I realized that's not true. It's not the truth. I didn't know where to go from there, but that's what prompted me to start researching topics of spirituality. I got my books about Buddhism and, you know, and about every religion except for Christianity, basically. I assumed that anything could be true except for Christianity. And my husband, who considered himself a non-practicing Christian, said, you might want to start with the one major world religion whose founder claimed to be God. After all, that's a really easy claim to disprove if it's not true. And I thought, well, that's a fair point. I was such a through and through atheist that I have to admit, I was ignorant of all these great Christian thinkers. What about Thomas Aquinas? <laughs> what about Augustine? What about Descartes? I mean, all of these great thinkers throughout history were not only theists, but Christians. And I was really surprised when I actually found these very intellectually rigorous books where people talked about their faith from a place of reason and not a place of emotion. And when I looked at evidence like that on the whole, I started to think something explosive, something world-changing happened in first century Palestine. All right, we're going to come back to this in just a minute, um, <clears throat> but I want you to—I want you to see something here. She then goes to. Actually, we'll go ahead and look at this. She she decides. I'm not just going to believe this yet. Uh, these people are coming at it from a place of intellectual seriousness, not just emotion. But I want to see if this holds up. I want to see if I test this with real Christians and real atheists and get them arguing with each other. Who seems to have the better case? Let's see what she found. But I wasn't yet you know, convinced and, and ready to become a Christian. And so I started a blog. I just threw out every hard question I could think of. I just put it all out there on the blog. And as I would watch the atheists and the Christians go back and forth and debate, I realized we atheists we don't have the lock on reason that I thought we did. But what I saw with the Christians was they had that too. They had all the knowledge of science and material world that, that we atheists did. 
but yet they had the total picture of the human experience of love and triumph and hope and you know they could articulate that in a way that the atheist couldn't All right, so something amazing happened in first century Palestine, and when I put these Christians up against these atheists, it just seems like their answers uh, handle more of the data. It just, just uh, seems to make better sense of the nature of reality. This is what she discovered. Now, I, I, want you to, um, I, I want you to look at this discussion. This is amazing because here we have Tom Holland, who is a historian and a writer, and he is an agnostic, okay? This is not a Christian. But he's extremely honest. So I've been talking to you now about how um, you you can't just get this stuff from YouTube atheists. To uh, there's there's a lot of kind of motivation and and propaganda and that sort of thing. And that happens on the Christian side too. Obviously, I'm biased. I want you to come to faith in Christ. Okay, so I'm I'm not acting like it doesn't happen to me. But here's a guy who's one of the who's who's an academic. He's not doing a YouTube channel, or if he is, I don't know about it. Maybe he is. I don't know. But incredibly honest about the data. This is what he has to say. He and N.T. Wright are talking about, with Justin Briley, about Paul on the road to Damascus. And what did Paul experience on the road to Damascus? You know, when he um, had this um, blinding light and, and believes that Jesus came to him. And what do we make? Is that historically reliable? And what, what do we make out of what Paul said and did and what he experienced there? And let's see what the agnostic Tom Holland has to say about this. I think it's profoundly mysterious. And I have no doubt that he did think that he had seen Jesus. I mean, I, I can't think of any other reason that would explain why he does what he does. And I mean, it's mysterious in in, in, in two ways, really. One is that, that he, he chucks over what presumably would have been a very comfortable career mm. to essentially embark on a life as a kind of wandering bum who is going to face repeated beatings Shipwrecks, and ultimately face that, death. Yeah. Um, and the other is why it would ever cross his mind that in some way a crucified criminal is, is a part of the one God of Israel. And the strange thing about, about all his letters is that Although he's arguing repeatedly for his understanding of who Jesus is and and how he should be understood and how he, he should be comprehended. I mean, I may be corrected on this, but I don't think at any point does he feel the need to actually argue that Jesus is a, in some way a part of God. I mean, this is just it, taken for granted. It, it, and everyone seems to right. understand this. Uh, and it used to be so. And when you had Larry Hurtado on the show, you mm. presumably discussed these kinds of things. Um, it used to be thought that Jesus only was regarded as fully divine much later, like mm. the end of the first generation or even early second century, um, only at the end of the New Testament period. And I think now... Most New Testament scholars are convinced that actually this is on the table from the beginning. And and it's certainly it's taken for granted in Galatians, which I think is yes. Paul's earliest letter. And the strangeness um, of that is, know, is, is something that we perhaps are, are, are kind of immune to because it's in the Bible, so you read it. And But you yeah, think, yeah, you know, yeah. why why would he think this? Yeah. Why well, would anyone context, think this? It's, it's a very yeah. strange thing for a, a, but, a devout Jew to have thought. But, yeah, but yeah, I would yeah. guess, I mean, I, and I, I can't remember whether you, whether you say this in your biography because I read it a couple, when, yeah, in yeah. proof. But but having you know having had presumably this kind of convulsive experience, presumably then he turns to scripture to try and work out <laughs> you know, what's happened. Yeah. 
Okay, so uh, this is great because what we have here is, uh, what is he saying the kind of thing that we're typically hear from YouTube atheists? Is he saying, well, Paul may not have had this experience. Paul may not have even existed. Paul, um, you know, he could have been lying. Maybe he was just uh, confused. Maybe just, you know, whatever. Not really. What he's saying is, <laughs> as an agnostic historian looking at this, I have no doubt Paul thought he saw the raised Jesus. And then he says, and I don't know how to handle this one. He commits himself to this life that is going to result in beatings and ultimately his death, implying that Tom Holland sees that Paul knew this he was going to face persecution if he, if he uh, carried this out. And he seemed to speak about Jesus as though in some powerful way he's connected or is part of God, he says. And and, and N.T. Wright jumps in with this powerful thing of, yeah, and, and Holland seems to agree. New Testament scholars used to think that that idea about Jesus and being part of God was like, something that came about later, but it's there in Galatians early on at the beginning of Paul's ministry. And here's, here's um, Tom Holland. I, I don't know what to make out of this. You know, this, is, this doesn't make any sense, right? What we have here is, well, I'll save it uh, for a moment from now, but let's go ahead and look at now N.T. Wright talking about the nature of the Messiah. Remember how we talked about, if you think this is, you talk about it being first century goat herders or whatever, um, these peasants coming up with this stuff. If it's made up, it is genius because, number one, it fits so well with what the Old Testament said about Jesus. And not because, like, they had to go back and try to make it fit. It fit facts together i mean unless you don't think if you unless you think jesus is just a complete fabrication in which case the genius of that would would equal it um but then on top of that if you know that jesus really did exist really died by roman crucifixion really said that he was god's special eschatological agent to bring about the kingdom really thought of it, all these things universally agreed upon by scholars okay if you really think that then to try and fit him in the way that he so easily and nicely fits these messianic things, just from what we know about him, uh, is is would be genius. It's one of those things like where you know the Hume thing about uh, if it, in order to demonstrate a miracle, you'd have to show that the other explanation is more miraculous. You know, it's like we're we're getting close there, right? So listen to what he says about the messianic statements in the Old Testament. Here. The Book of Ezekiel hugely important and parallels in Isaiah, particularly Isaiah forty and fifty two. God's promise that he will one day come back visibly in person to dwell in the temple, to rescue his people, to do what has to be done, etc., etc. And those promises are kind of shimmering in the background. And some people in the Jewish world, like the author of the book we call Ben Sira or Ecclesiasticus, seems to think that this sort of has happened because wisdom has come to dwell in the temple in the form of the teaching of Torah. Now, most Jews in Paul's day, I don't think, believed that. They still thought there was something major yet to happen. And it is as though with Paul and indeed with the Gospels, it isn't just that they are telling Jesus stories and somehow saying, by the way, there's another dimension to this. They are telling the story, which was Israel's story about God coming back. But the only way they can tell it is by talking about Jesus. So it's not just a Jesus story with a God dimension. It's actually mm. the God story with a Jesus focus. Yeah. And, and it's hard for us to realize that because the last 200 years, philosophically, theologically, we haven't been there. So when I then look at how Paul is handling Isaiah, how he's handling 
the, the passages about the new exodus with um, the pillar of cloud and fire coming only now it's Jesus and the Spirit. You see, he's drawing on Jewish traditions about the presence and saving power of God. And then, of course, they all get focused, not least on that middle chunk of Isaiah, where you get the so-called suffering servant. And the suffering servant seems to be God saying, actually, when you look to see what it's like when I come back to rescue you, oh my goodness, it's going to be like this. And we see Jewish exegetes at the time struggling with Isaiah 53, some of them thinking it's a Messiah, but actually the suffering is what he inflicts on other people, and other people thinking, no, it's his real suffering, but it's the martyrs, it's not the Messiah. And Jesus, and then Paul picking this up, seemed to have fused these two together with this extraordinary notion of a suffering Messiah who turns out to be the personal embodiment of Israel's God. And that so th this is the amazing thing. Notice here that what N.T. Wright is saying is, okay, you, you got, you've got these Old Testament Jews trying to figure this thing out about the Messiah. And while you know, th there's obviously the view that we're familiar with that the Jews thought that um, the Messiah was going to be like David, right? And he's going to come in, and, and what they understood that to mean was, uh, many of them, was that he's going to be this conquering uh, Messiah that's going to come in a military leader and drive out the Romans and all that sort of thing. And, uh, they, you know, that was, that was a good idea. But they had these two views that seem to be somewhat in conflict, that on the one hand, there is this um, idea of that God is going to come personally and dwell among us, okay? And, 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 and we're going to know it. We're going we're gonna to have that experience of God. But then on the other hand, he's going to be a suffering servant, these two things seem to be greatly in tension. That, and so we got to figure this out. And just like today, when with certain theological issues, people try to figure out how to how to maneuver and how to understand the theological tensions that there might be between doctrines, like with Calvinists and Arminians and all these kind of people. Um, in the same way, the Jews were trying to figure out how is this suffering servant stuff related to this God coming and dwelling among us and all that whole whole thing as the Messiah. Well, maybe, he says, some of them, here's how we resolve the tension. That suffering, that's what he's going to do to his enemies, right? That, that's what that is. He's not the suffering one. He's going to cause others to suffer. But that didn't seem quite right. And then others, well, maybe it's the, the martyrs that are going to die, you know, perhaps in his name. They're the suffering ones. But that doesn't seem quite right. And then we get Jesus, and it just happens to fit perfectly that the kingdom he's ushering in is this spiritual kingdom, and he's a suffering servant. And here's the thing, if you, if you think that sounds like some sort of a manipulation, think about the power, that concept. I don't just mean the staying power of Christianity, although that certainly is true. That This man is the most important figure in all of human history, has impacted the world in a greater way. Uh, art, uh, science, architecture, all these kind of things. But I, I want you to notice the concept of, that there's something noble about the courageous suffering, this concept of what seems to be a victim becoming someone who is powerful. And don't take my word for it. Take the words of agnostic Tom Holland about it. How strange would this idea of a god who, or a messiah or whatever, who becomes crucified be have been in the Roman world that, that this message was being delivered into? Uh, beyond Tom. weird. <laughs> Be totally beyond weird, as as Paul repeatedly says. I mean, he yes. says that it, you know it is it, it's foolishness a scandal, it's an outrage, it's yeah. foolishness, it's it's it, it, it's ridiculous, and he's aware of this the whole time. Just how embarrassing this is, in a sense. <laughs> well, yeah. it, well, it is kind of you know. I mean, it, it and that is the whole point yes. that that to suffer death on a cross is, 
you know, it's it's the worst death that the, the Roman state can inflict, but it is also shaming in the context of the Mosaic law, which also yeah. says that, you know, to be hung from a tree is a cause of... of, of you know. and, and we often mm-hmm. forget with our stylized depictions of the crucifixion just how gory yeah, it's, and it's, shameful it's, it's, it, yes, it was. And, and, and so what is happening is that the, it, it's like a kind of, it's the ultimate judo throw where mm. you turn the strength of your opponent against him. The Roman power is affirmed by brutality. The The, the governor of a province has the right to burn, to throw to beasts, to crucify anyone who he feels is a danger to Roman power. And Mm -hmm. governors did that absolutely at the drop of a hat. So what is happening with um, Paul's proclamation of the one God in some way suffering this fate is to absolutely upend the very fabric and basis not just of roman power but of power full stop yeah, because of course yeah, the, yeah. the the assumption through you know from reading the, the the jewish scriptures was that god is a warrior and that mm. god will you know the overthrow of roman power the um the, the establishment of a kingdom of peace will in some way be affected by the sword yes. yeah. and what Paul is saying is that actually the true source of power is is to suffer. And that notion, you know, that that to be a victim can somehow be a source of power is unbelievably subversive yeah, in the context yeah. of classical antiquity. And still and today, can, to some extent. Oh, I yes. mean, you know, yeah, it's but, not but, as though we all believe that today. In... Although you see, you know, you see all the time in the news at the moment yeah. that that to cast yourself as a victim is somehow to give yourself power and and you would only have power by virtue of being a victim if you existed in the context of a society that was still in its fundamentals christian mm, yes. you know, in in the roman world if you said i'm a victim they'd say yeah and <laughs> i'll enslave you <laughs> yes exactly thanks very thank- yeah so uh, this is why i said a while ago y- your impressions about the value you know human value in this ex- to this extent and the understanding that there is something noble about the courageous victim as we might say and that suffering is somehow yeah you know, all these kind of things that's a very christian westernized christianized um christianized concept that has impacted the west i should say and here you, you hear it from from uh from tom holland I, I want you to notice this this idea he says is a judo throw to the romans it is to upend the authoritative structures and power structures that were in play in the Mediterranean world at the time. This is so powerful. This is why if you're going to say this is made up, it is genius. Um, But the fact is, it still doesn't make sense to Tom Holland. It's, what does he say? It's beyond weird. It is strange. It is bizarre. What's N.T. Wright doing? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's right, because what's going on here? On the left, we have Tom Holland. Very nice man. I appreciate his honesty. Affably admitting that this doesn't seem to make any sense. And what does he mean? If I don't believe that something supernatural happened to Paul on the road to Damascus, if I'm committed to that not being the case and committed to the resurrection having not happened and all those sorts of things, if I don't have this God belief... I don't know how to make sense of this. And then you have N.T. Wright over here. And what is N.T. Wright saying? N.T. Wright would say, on my worldview, the larger worldview, the world beyond the Truman Show, 
the world of higher things that lays on top of the microcosm of naturalism and the Truman Show. These things all slide in nicely. Why is it that Jesus seems to match up to these seemingly contradictory Old Testament ideas about the Messiah? Because he's really the Son of God. Why is it that Paul really did have this dramatic change of heart that made him willing to face persecution and all these kind of things because of his claim that he saw, uh, encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus? Because he really encountered Jesus on, uh, on the road to Damascus, Right? Uh, why is it that this system seems to so cleverly upend the Romans and, and the power structure and has impacted the world that here we are 2,000 years later still kind of relying on the echo of Christianity, even you secularists and atheists, because it really is the heart of God. It all fits if we appreciate the larger world, the beautiful world beyond the walls of the Truman Show. But what it requires, it requires for you to be willing to sail across that shallow sea, walk up those blue stairs, open the door at the edge of the Truman Show, and recognize this greater, more beautiful, fuller explanation in this deeper and more whimsical world than you ever thought possible. A world that makes sense of everything, just as the realization for Truman that this was a television studio made sense now of the spotlight falling, the car radio tracking his position, and the elevator with the people inside changing costumes. Now it all made sense because I understand there's a greater world and there's a more comprehensive view. And in the same way, if you can, you know, Rhett asked for you to do this, uh, for us Christians to do this, and I'm asking you skeptics to do this, would you just for a moment just step back and say, what if maybe it's true? Let me try that belief on for a moment that it's true. Some of you are going to say, yeah, but I was raised Christian. I know what it's like to wear those clothes and to imagine things that way. All right, I understand that. Fair enough. I don't want to take away that experience from you. But our experiences are very unique to our experiences. I know that's a tautology, but it's also true. Your version of Christianity that you were raised with was the version you were raised with. And you aren't thinking of this, these concepts that I'm describing to you right now in this video, in this way, necessarily. So at this moment, try on these clothes after this video ends. Think about it. What if I look at the world with those glasses on, with the understanding that Christian theism is true? It'll make sense of those values. It'll make sense of equality. It'll make sense of the facts about the growth of the early church and Jesus and Paul and the Messiah and all that. It'll make sense of design and cosmology. It'll make sense of consciousness. It'll make sense of all of these things in an incredible way. And by the way, the sense that you think has been made of things like consciousness that you may hear from YouTube's videos made by atheists, Go listen to what the scholars say about this. Who are atheists? You'll see there's a real struggle here. This is a real difficulty. And I think if you'll find the comprehensive view of Christianity, if you'll consider that for a moment. Truman had to consider the possibility before he would ever cross the sea. If you'll consider it, I think you'll find yourself crossing a shallow sea. It will not be comfortable, as it wasn't for Truman. It will not be comfortable for you because it will mean having to admit that you were wrong, perhaps. I've had to do that about things. It, it, will, it will be difficult. It could hurt some relationships. 
It will probably make other relationships easier, that's true. But when you open that door, you will find a wider world, one that makes sense in a comprehensive way. This channel exists because we love atheists. Contact me if you want to at braxton at trinityradio.org. I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.